0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prometheus podcast, where we discuss all things macro markets and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. This is the seventh episode in a series of many podcasts to come, where we bring you thoughtful, insightful, and actionable conversations. Today, we have on another fantastic guest for you, Andy Constant. Andy is the founder and CIO of Dam Spring Advisors, a macroeconomic research firm specializing in hedge fund consulting. Andy brings a great deal of experience to the table, having worked at some of the biggest macro hedge funds out there, including Bridgewater and Brevin Howard. Andy has generated some serious alpha this year using his flow-based approach to time key inflection points in asset markets. So I'm sure his framework is going to be enlightening for all. Andy, so great to have you on.
1: Thanks a lot, Aha.
0: All right. um, Why don't we just dive right into it? Why don't you start us off by briefly outlining your framework for macro and also for investing?
1: Yeah. So, um, let me talk about alpha, which is the macro that I'm. we're going to spend most of our conversation on. Um, I do also uh, spend a fair amount of time trying to think about beta. But um, as it relates to alpha, um, my framework looks at what I think is um, the necessary uh, table stakes that one needs to um, trade macro, which is an understanding of uh, growth and inflation, and its impact on asset prices. Um, and I think this is fairly common now, but um, a very important part of my framework, particularly given the context of the last few years is um, the risk premium channel. And uh, in the risk premium channel, uh, assets as a class are either preferred versus cash or um, cash is king and assets are um, trash. Um, and that channel is again, a cable table stakes, I believe. um and then I guess lastly is uh, an understanding of flow and positioning and how uh, that shifts through time. And so those are the four pillars I use
0: excellent indeed we've we've had a few people that are you know very focused on growth and inflation. and i I think that your focus on risk premium has been extremely important this year. and of course, your, your focus on flows has been probably very helpful in kind of deciding how to apply that framework in a timely fashion. Um, now, I think before we get into those, those two components, maybe we can take a little step back and talk a little bit about alpha, right? So maybe you can start by outlining your thinking about what is alpha, what are the characteristics of alpha, and how do you generate sustainable alpha?
1: Yeah, so I think of alpha as as fairly straightforward, which is um, it's a market timing thing. Basically, you buy when you think others are going to buy and push the prices higher, and you sell to them when they do. Or you sell uh, because you expect others to sell in the future, and you buy back when they push the market lower. And I consider that alpha. It's essentially a zero-sum game, though there are some participants that I believe offer you know, consistent long-term alpha um, uh, because they have um, either structural uh, problems or are really not economic players in terms of a P and L, but are you know playing a bigger game. In particular, when I speak to those, I mean um, uh, fiscal and monetary uh, policymakers.
0: Okay, um, that that makes sense. So when you're when you're constructing kind of like a a portfolio of these alphas right how do you think about as you know both from a systematic perspective and a kind of discretionary perspective about you know the the only free lunch right which is diversification right when you're using kind of risk premium as a driver of generating alpha how do you think about diversifying your bets on risk premium
1: yeah so I guess at the high level through time, I look to have uncorrelated alpha streams, meaning whatever assets, portfolio of assets I have, um, I trade those assets because I believe I have long-term alpha and long-term is, you know, that's always degrading and it's always needs to be revo- refined and improved and all that, but let's just say I have, an alpha for trading bonds and an alpha for trading stocks and that those that the positions that arise from that those two alphas generally um, the when i think i have alpha in one does not necessarily correlate to when i think i have alpha in another and so those alpha streams themselves are not correlated at the same time um, we know that asset prices can be correlated. So once you have the alpha streams that are uncorrelated, that doesn't solve your problem. You still need to look at your portfolio construction. And so that's a, what I consider portfolio construction, ex-ante p- portfolio construction, and risk management overlays. Um, and those basically are, okay, so we happen to, and again, it's not expected, but even in uncorrelated alpha streams, I could want to be long bonds and short stocks. And I may want to have a max position long bonds and short stocks. Um, in that circumstance, I am very exposed to rising growth conditions. And so that particular factor is um, undiversified, in fact, concentrated. Um, both positions um, would. Um, um, move in the same direction, both positions would move against me in the event of a rising growth scenario, growth expectation scenario. And so that's not diversified adequately. And so I would prevent myself to take, to, of taking up that position, um, despite the fact that my alpha signals are requiring, desiring max positions in both. Does that? And so I do that at a portfolio level across many different assets at once.
0: That, that makes sense. Um, and I guess what comes to mind is that the, the discussion seems to be one that, that favors kind of quantification and systematization. And I know that you have experience at, at, at two very different funds, two very premier hedge funds that do two completely different approaches to this, right? One, one fund which goes completely concentrated, which was Brevin Howard and the, you know, Bridgewater, which was extremely diversified. And maybe you can kind of talk about, you know, concentration and systematization and kind of how you think about marrying the discretionary and systematic approach when you're thinking about creating a portfolio of uncorrelated offers.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm not, I I think this can devolve into a religious discussion um, regarding whether systemizing or discretionary, discretionary is a better approach. Um, I would like to call myself agnostic and believe that um, both of them are exactly the same thing, which is trying to create a picture right now that you recognize, a snapshot right now, that you recognize in all its rich detail as similar to something that's uh, uh, occurred in history um, in which you compare that snapshot to a snapshot that was taken uh in a in another period of history or ideally many periods of history and you look at the subsequent outcome of the past pictures as somehow indicative of what could happen given the the current picture the trick is that with systematic um that picture is um something Ray likes to call Ray, Ray Dalio likes to call pixelated just like Um, you know, a a, um, impressionistic painting by Surratt that would be lots of little dots that make up an image or a television screen or a computer screen in terms of lots of little dots that is different than a film or an analog picture. Um, An analog picture has all the richness of real life and doesn't miss anything. Um, The pixelated picture has what is limited to what pixels you can identify. And so um, but both are trying to achieve the same goal. They're trying to, in their mind or with computers, compare the real picture with whatever the real picture was in a set of historical observations, and then see what the subsequent outcomes were in history. And so a great discretionary trader who uses no computers can be great at because they truly see analog unlike a, a computer. Um, they can and they may have great memory and compare that analog picture to the analog pictures in their brain and um really identify that this in fact is exactly the same and a bad systematic trader can look at that picture and say no this is not the same and they will miss what the analog trader the discretionary trader can see but uh, that's for the discretionary trader. That's really hard to be able to see the analog for what it is, at, which is today. But more relevantly, see what all the other analogs were using a brain, and that's just hard to do. So I'm not. Um, I, I would just like to say that you know it would be great if the if if an analog if a discretionary trader could really do what they say. It would be great to computerize it. And that would be my goal. And so for me personally, um, I'm a one-man shop and com- competing, but uh, there are 150-person um, smart, smartest minds I've ever met at Bridgewater with 30 years of doing exactly what I'm describing in terms of systematic trading that are you know filling in those pixels at ways I can never possibly achieve. Um, but I try each day. I try to systemize something.
0: Right. So it's it's very much an evolutionary process, right? Like where you're continuously kind of trying to systematize as much of your logic as you can, but you're also trying to capture as much rich kind of discretionary picture as you can at the same time so that you can actually.
1: And the process is, and I guess my point is the process is still the same thing. Looking Mm -hmm. at reality and compare it to historical reality and you know history doesn't necessarily repeat itself but you know knowing what history has done is useful um and so yeah i mean that's it's it's a goal it's not and by the way bridgewater hasn't created an analog picture of the world using computers they just try really hard to do it
0: exactly and it's a it's a constant evolution and i i think the the thing with alpha is also that it the closer you get, the further it seems to move away, right? You know, you have more people trying to try to approach these systematic strategies. And as a result, you know, things that may have existed at one point in time as potential alpha sources, you know, start to dwindle, or you have alpha decay, right? Absolutely. Okay, I think we have a very good understanding of kind of what you're trying to construct in an alpha portfolio. Now, I think now is a good time to get into the levels you're trying to pull to generate this alpha. So sure. maybe, maybe we can start, by kind of talking about risk premium and what it is, you know, and does it vary by asset class and how you generally think about it? So maybe we start at the big picture of what risk premium is, and then we can go into separate asset classes.
1: Sure. And I will tell you, over the last couple of months, um, my thinking on this has evolved in a way in which I think I've made a new insight, at least for me. But um, I think it's so anyway, I'll come back to that point. But let's just start at the high level, which is. Um, why do people buy assets when they have cash? And the answer is um, they are willing, you know, it's 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 a bet. Um, and, you know, at, as you look at any bet, if somebody walked up to you and said, uh, you know, here's a 50-50 bet, we're going to flip a coin and, you know, either I win and you get this, you, you win and you get a payment or I win and I get a payment. Um, and the payments are the same, you know, no human being should be willing, rationally willing to take that bet. Why do they need volatility in their cash holdings, simply for, for no expected return. And so people with cash generally think that way, I, uh, you know, before I deploy my cash, which will prevent me from spending in the near term, um, I want a expected return. And Um, And so they get that no matter what asset they buy, as long as that asset has um, the potential of when they need the cash to deliver less than what they um, originally lent to the um, other side, um, they need a expected return. And that expected return is what I consider risk premium and it applies to anything that is volatile, um, anything that may change in price versus cash. Um, and so, uh, when you bring that to um, to markets, you know it's um, the riskier the thing is, the more risk premium you would expect to receive. Um, so that's one level of things. And then the other, and so the the volatility of your of the investment is one level of things. And then the other thing is um, uh, there are periods in time when um, people have lots of cash, and there are fewer investments than people would like. Um, and there are times when cash is very dear, and where um, there, and there are a lot of investments looking for investors. Um, and those times are sort of a, a monetary phenomena where um, risk premiums uh, fluctuate based on, you know, how dear is cash versus how... Um, available cash is, and when it's available, risk premiums are low, and when it's dear, not, not um, you know, uh, rare to have excess cash around, um, then uh, risk premiums are wide. And so those are the two high-level points on what drives risk premium. Um, and for a long time, and this is where I'm, my, I'm starting to rethink some of this idea, You asked about individual assets, well, the same thing should apply to them, Um, you know, if you compare one asset to another, you should desire the same expected, the same risk-adjusted return regardless of what asset you buy. And so, and when you have a portfolio of assets, you may actually get a higher risk-adjusted return um, and that's why building a balanced portfolio is free money as you described earlier Which is all of these assets on their own should have the same expected risk adjusted return. But because those assets aren't correlated, a portfolio of those assets will have a higher risk adjusted return. And so, you know, that's basic theory. And I believe it to be arbitraged by participants who say, um, you know, my portfolio has a lower expected return because it's becoming more volatile. So my Um, natural um, desire is to reduce my portfolio size, or my portfolio is likely to experience drawdowns because money is getting tighter because the Fed is not buying treasuries anymore, and so I want to shrink my portfolio. And the same thing should apply to assets, which brings up the thing I've been thinking about lately, which is um, assets... Asset arbitrage means that all expected returns should be about the same with each asset on a forward-looking basis. Um, And sometimes an asset can can become um, volatile on its own right without having an impact on the volatility of other assets. Modest impact, but not necessarily related. Um, It's what I call idiosyncratic volatility. And so I think we've been seeing an incredible um, um, increase in uh, long-term um, bond volatility with that's met, you can measure for you know, home players, you can measure with the move index um, as compared to the VIX, which is relatively stable. And so it seems to me there's some idiosyncratic increase in volatility, expectations of volatility in um, ten-year bonds versus equities, which should be arbitraged by people selling ten, preferring to sell ten years and buy um, equities, um, and so that you know that's something I'm working on now.
0: That's that's excellent. Um, I I think um, a few things that I'd like to explore when it comes to that. I think the this this idea of idiosyncratic volatility um, can is that a way of thinking about it, you know, going back to the original framework where the idiosyncratic volatility is largely a function of the, the growth and inflation outcomes, right? So if you, if you think about, um, we're talking about risk premium and that risk premium should be fairly stable across asset classes, right? Because ex ante, we can't really know what environment we're going to go into. So we have this stable kind of expected return for a given level of volatility. And that's a separate aspect to discuss as well, right, whether volatility and, and, re- and expected return should scale together or not. Right. Um, and I, I wonder whether you can think of this uh, idiosyncratic volatility or, you know, this idiosyncratic change in, in risk premium as really just a function of what the dominant, you know, growth and inflation environment is.
1: Sure. I, I, I so 100% agree. And I think that's exactly what is the driver, which mm. is the delta to... Um, changes in growth and um, inflation are different for each asset, and um, you know, for equities, for instance. And I think this might be—I might—I'm rooting around what I think might be going on. But in e- equities, for instance, um, there's this give and take regarding inflation. Um, for instance, inflation can be positive for equities in the very in the in in some time frame. Uh, let's not evolve into how this goes through time. But um, for instance, right now, we're seeing high nominal growth with wages lagging on a a real basis. That should be good for margins, which should be good for equities. Now, we can talk about what's priced in, all that sort of stuff, but that driver should be a positive for equities. Um, At some point, wages, in the wage price spiral, wages, wages um, accelerate relative to inflation, and that reduces margins. And so that is a self-correcting volatility for equities, which over time should cause equities to be more stable. Whereas inflation, full stop, regardless of where it comes from, from wages or from um, um, top line, the relative change in wages and top line, it's all about nominal um, versus real and inflation expectations. And so nominal bonds are always affected by rising inflation, whereas equities may be less and more, you know, it's a, it's a give and take. Um, and so the delta to inflation, so that plays out by the delta to inflation being um, very strong for nominal bonds and weak and, and volatile and um, near zero and volatile, sometimes positive, sometimes negative for equities, which to me means equities are less risky than um, to that factor than bonds. And that could that could have something to do with um, what's going on. But yes, I, I think it only could be coming from the relative sensitivities to the principal drivers. Um, There's some other, you know, modest idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies that could occur um, regarding who holds bonds versus who holds equities and flow related things. But the framework should be broadly applicable um, that the volatilities can differ and perpetuate.
0: That makes sense. And uh, you know, you can tell me if you agree with this characterization, because this is kind of how I've been thinking about it. It's it's that during a period of what we are calling stagflationary nominal growth, variable cash flows, given you know at a particular point in time, if they are higher than fixed cash flows, they probably need to command a little bit more value than fixed cash flows, which are being eroded by inflation.
1: Yes, but the, the, it would have to be true also that those variable um, cash flows are um, nominal. Yeah, right. absolutely. That's, that's yeah. They have to vary in a way that is advantageous when, um, to, to, and they might not, like in periods when wage inflation is um, dominating, that would be a negative. So it's, it's the give and take more so than it is the absolute direction um, that I think I'm dealing with. But yes, broadly speaking, what you said is consistent.
0: Okay I can uh, and I guess the the last uh, element before we go on uh, to flow is uh, this idea of volatility and expected return right um what you kind of alluded to at the outset is that you know on a risk adjusted basis you should kind of expect similar returns on assets and you know you've you've talked about this idiosyncrasy but the 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 question I think that comes to mind is that you know should returns kind of scale with with volatility and your expected returns
1: There's vol and there's risk, and those are different. So my framework is risk. And vol is a measure of risk, but not risk. And no one knows what risk is. And there are lots of different ratios besides sharp ratio that try to do that, but none of them are right. And so what I'd say is is, um, expected returns um, vary with risk. Um, and the um, shortcut is they vary with volume.
0: in your In your mind, how would you triangulate kind of risk? You know if, if no one measure does it for you, we probably want to put together a bunch to kind of get a sense. And so conceptually, how do you put that together?
1: So I, I, you know my my two strongest drivers in my risk premium models are um, drawdown and um, and, uh, and vol. So you know those are the those are the big ones. You're going to get most of it with those two.
0: Okay, yeah, it makes Sorrentino,
1: sense. Like people use Sorrentino. I, 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 you know, I like that. It's fine. It's a good measure. Um, but there are lots of other interesting ones. Um, I actually, you know, as I think about investor um, investor conditions, it just matters a lot to me. Um, the tolerance of a drawdown when you're up hundred percent is just different than the tolerance of a drawdown when you're um, down 20% um, and those those hit differently and so it's not just uh, so it's not just drawdown it's also drawdown given performance that I think affects investors um, and you know it's just a human nature to say you know I, I just made hundred percent on my investment and gave back 20 um, versus um, Making twenty percent, losing twenty percent on your investment, and then being faced with another twenty percent drawdown, people react differently to that, and I think um, that is uh, needs to be included.
0: Yeah. So this segues nicely into the, the next kind of element of of your framework, which is flow, right? Which is largely probably a function of you know various investors' volatility tolerance and their drawdown tolerance given performance. So you know in and obviously, there's a there are many ways over time to kind of track flow and try to you know anticipate flow. But in your mind, kind of, why don't you go through kind of the the major drivers that you've seen this year and how you've been thinking through them?
1: Sure. So let me just uh, so the the for m- many years at least a lot, at least through COVID and certainly farther back. Uh, The flows that have dominated all other flows have been uh, fiscal and monetary flows. Um, So that's what mostly I'm paying attention to at at a detail level and very little else matters. Um, However, let me paint a broader picture. The idea of flow for trading alpha is that what one wants to know is when someone is going to trade uh, before they trade, you wanna know what their direction is and what their market impact will be. And what you wanna do is trade a little bit before what they um, trade and um, uh, right when they're finishing, you know, un- unwind that trade. Um, and that's what flow is supposed to do. And you know, ideally you would have their ticket in front of you. Um, so what I wanna do is have everyone's um, buy and sell ticket in, in front of me before they execute. Um, and so that's my desire. And so What I need to know about that is every single investor um, in the world um, what they hold and what they will likely do um, in the event of um, things that lead them writing that ticket and so the study which is also ongoing because no one knows what people actually own and certainly um, any possible way of figuring out all investors at once is, except in very small circumstances where there's a you know a very well-known um, inelastic flow that has to trade in the markets, very hard to, to front-run um, individual investors in that way. Um, so what you do is you begin by um, creating cohorts of investor types and how they are behaving as a group through time. And so my goal with my flow is to know every single cohort's positioning and how they behave through time. And so that's what I do. So I'm constantly looking to define cohorts um, and then look at their past behavior um, based on things that will that led based on changes in um, data that led them to generate flow and then understand whether that flow, is market impacting?
0: Why don't we kind of segment the, these different flows that I think are very meaningful this year? So I think there's, you know, the popular dealer hedging flow. There is the, you know, vol control flow, which you've done fantastic work on, right? Which is, you know, allowed you to kind of get the two bear market rallies quite close to the the actual date. And then there's the quantitative tightening flow, which I think is the biggest driver that you're alluding
1: to. Maybe we can kind of go through those three. Yeah, so let me put gamma behind us because I think it's, it's behind us for the time being, which is, um, you know, rates gamma, which is, I think, the topic we're focused on here, um, depends highly on how um, much, uh, how close um, and how often and how fast Mortgages are refinanced. And most mortgages right now are very low coupon and highly unlikely to get refinanced. So there was a period of time between zero rates and today's rates where there was tremendous gamma, which led to high idiosyncratic volatility for 10 year notes. Um, And we were able to catch a fair amount of that, which basically looks like any short gamma position where once a rally gets started, the rally Goes farther than anyone might expect, and then once a sell-off occurs, it goes farther. Now that was mostly a first quarter of twenty twenty-two outlook, and you know we were able to capture some of that. And I think that's behind us now. There's equity gamma, and I've spent a lot, way more time than people probably want to hear about the um, J.P. Morgan Asset Management um, gamma um, at quarter ends. Um, but there's a bunch of great. Um, uh, Twitter personalities and sell side um, analysts that uh, really track the sort of regular gamma that occurs through each expiration. And, you know, having been an equity derivatives specialist for the first half of my career, I have that stuff. I just think that there's, um, it probably gets more coverage than um, I could create any additional added value. It's part of my. Portfolio signals, but you know it—it it matters. It matters a lot in certain cases, and I highlight when it does. But you know, there's great coverage of that. So let's move on to um, um, the deleveraging flow, which I think has been um, very important, um, and it comes back to risk premium, which is um, your natural—a uh, portfolio manager's natural desire um, when. Um, some combination of drawdowns and higher volatility expectations occur. Their natural desire is to shrink the size of their portfolio. Um, And every seller needs a buyer. And every buyer is looking at the same thing the seller is looking at saying, geez, why am I gonna increase my portfolio given you know, recent drawdowns and uh, of, of possibly their own portfolio um, and um, higher future expected volatility. Why am I going to take that down? And the answer is they demand a risk premium and they are very elastic where the seller may be inelastic and that results in price declines. And so deleveraging results in price declines because for that very, very basic reason. Um, and releveraging, we're... we're have the opposite impact because everyone wants to relever when the volatility, portfolio volatility looks like it's coming down and drawdowns are behind us. And option markets allow people to delever um, in a known way when if you are, for instance, a portfolio manager that systematically owns uh, put options, um, You don't have to do anything. You just watch, and you know if you're good, you might time out of being able to sell your puts when they're worth something versus letting them expire. But regardless, you don't change your portfolio size because you have the protection. On the other hand, the person who sold you the puts is absolutely doing doing your deleveraging for you and releveraging for you by their dynamic process. So the market is a deleveraging and releveraging entity um, for. Very fundamental reasons, and in 1987, where I started my love of markets was when I was on the Brady Commission, and I, you know, with five other guys, figured out the impact of of portfolio insurance, which is a um, deleveraging, releveraging flow that was systematic um, without without the middleman of the one the person who sold the puts. Um, so how do you know whether deleveraging flows or leveraging flows are going to occur? And my, my first process in that was to build something that made sense to me about um, what metrics would people use to um, delever? Um, and so I have a forecast of the, not a forecast, what I believe is the real-time level of leverage that an invest set of investors would likely have given the outlook and that's gotten very extreme in uh the end of june and got very extreme again in the end of in the end of september and into early october for that matter (laughs) the low wasn't put in when i bought which was you know on september 29th but it was put in soon after that, and it was because of these delevering flows um, peaking. Um, and since then, we've had a risk on re-leveraging flow that is traceable with actual position data. Um, in particular, um, you can you know, confirm this by watching the um, long-term um, holdings versus price, relationship of of the TFF data for um, long only investors, um, which you know their futures position varies almost precisely with someone who is following price, which is the classic leveraging and deleveraging flow of dynamic hedging or of whatever of portfolio insurance. And so you know my intuition, which is that I have something that can predict when there is, deleveraging um, that has occurred um, and my has been confirmed by some by you know uh, collaborate um, triangulated with other data um, makes me think that that's what was occurring and mass deleveraging. Um, at the same time, and this is the segue into the next topic, which is QT, at the same time, Q t is a headwind that isn't going away. Um, and you know you may um, see levering and delevering flows, but it's in the context of a gross delevering of of all uh, assets by generated by the government, buying fewer of them, um creating more assets that have to be owned. And so that's a strong headwind. I like to call it the um, sold call of the Fed, um, whereas in the past during QE and, and in most cycles, you have the Fed put um, that they've sold to the market. Um, now we have a set sold call. And so while we concede levering and delevering being um, a cyclical phenomenon, like I described, um, we still are dealing with a headwind of QT, and that's not going away.
0: before we get into qt um which i'm very excited to get into um i i'd like to get a sense of kind of what is it that in your mind is driving the levering and delevering and i i think i've heard you in 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 the past allude to you know two big drivers being essentially correlation involved right and um i guess a follow-up to that is how much of this um this kind of combination of correlation and vol is coming from stocks and bonds drawing down together, forcing more delevering than probably what we're used to, you know, for the sake of the audience in, you know, previous iterations of, you know, equity bear markets, you probably had a situation where your equities went down, but your bonds went up. So as a result, you had to net those two exposures out to get back to balance, right? But in today's state of the world, we actually have both of them drawing down together, which results in your portfolio of all in aggregate rising. So maybe you can expand on that idea a little bit if you agree.
1: So I completely agree. Um, and um, I'll focus on the driver first, which is um, so let's start step back and say, why should bonds and stocks correlate and why should bonds and stocks not correlate? and. Um, Bonds and stocks should correlate if risk premiums are moving because they're all assets and are all scale with risk premiums. Um, So when risk premiums are moving bonds, contracting bonds and stocks go up and when risk premiums are expanding bonds and stocks go down. Secondly, um, Though I mentioned the um the loose and sometimes um, opposite correlation toward inflation, by and large, when inflation is a driver, bonds go down. But when inflation is rising, bonds go down, and stocks by and large go down, not as much, and so there's but they're still correlated, um, just not as strongly. And as I said, sometimes negatively correlated. Um, but again, not strongly. Um, so then there's growth, and when growth goes down, stocks do badly and bonds do well, and when growth does, does, um, does well, stocks do well and bonds do badly. Um, because you want to own a lemonade stand when there's growth, you don't want to have lent to the lemonade stand. So what have we had for 40 years? We've by and large had inflation not being a factor or falling. Um, and risk premiums being supported by um, relatively easy monetary policy and confidence that whenever growth became a factor, um, accommodation would follow. And so in the last 40 years, those conditions have resulted with inflation falling um, and growth falling and yet accommodated financial conditions. You've seen both assets rally over the long term, but over the short term, um, growth has been the principal variable that's gone up and down. Everything else has been sort of secular. Um, And with growth going up and down, bonds and stocks don't correlate. So that's what everyone's counted on in the the classic, in all portfolios of any sort. It doesn't matter whether it's 60-40, risk parity, whatever it is, if you own both, you got screwed. Um, So here we are where um, correlations have gone, have become strong stock and bond correlations, though that's really reversed in the last um, um, recent time period, which is interesting in its own right. Um, over the course of the last year, we've seen re- inflation rising as a driver and risk premiums expanding. Um, and so the risk part of the risk premium expansion is the acceptance that that correlation is no longer a hedge, which results in higher portfolio volatility and drawdown expectations. If you no longer are hedged, your portfolio is more volatile. And so people have wanted to delever and have continuously delevered, not just because of QT, but because of the macroeconomic factors that are driving risk premiums uh, sorry, uh, inflation expectations higher. Um, and um, growth has really not been a factor. There have been times when there's been a little bit of a recession fear. Um, and bonds have rallied and stocks have fallen, or there's been times like today where um, bonds are underperforming because um, there's optimistic growth expectations, I think, in the, in the market versus extremely pessimistic a month ago. Um, but the high level point is correlations are now um, um, positive are positive, and expected to stay positive. And I don't think that's a reasonable expectation long-term. Uh, because of how positive they already are. And so that's one of the factors that I look at, which says people are overestimating idiosyncratic volatility. So each asset volatility, they're overestimating in particular fixed income, but also equities and commodities and gold and other things. Um, and also overestimating the failure of portfolio um, diversification. Those combinations of things are resulting in as high as a delevering factor as I've seen um, twice this year. Um, and I mean, seen in decades. Um, so um, the vols are high, but they're not as high as they have been in crash, but the high with the correlation b- being positive has been, you know, ver- result results in portfolio diversification sorry, portfolio expected um, volatility, expected risk being much higher than anyone had expected, which has resulted in a delevering.
0: Consistent with that, what we've been seeing is that this is probably one of the strongest periods of zero uh, correlation in both equity markets and bond markets. Well, equity markets probably in Q2 when, when it really, you know, the, the inflation kind of took off. And till date, we still see What you're saying in terms of when these portfolios have to gross down together to reduce their exposure, one week's declines results in next week's declines because you have to continue to meet your vol target, which is lower than what you're probably realizing because of higher correlations.
1: Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, that sort of um, self-perpetuating delevering and relevering is why is to me why we've had such high portfolio vol.
0: Absolutely. So they they, drive each other. And I, I think you're absolutely right that there, there are definitely limits to how much of this, that, you know, we can continue to do because there's only so much we can delever at a given period in time. Um, well,
1: you know, it, it, again, it depends on price, because I really want to reiterate that every deleveraging is a equal and opposite levering by someone else. And so as much as we might like to think the market is deleveraging, the market isn't deleveraging at all. The assets are just falling because those who want to delever for whatever reason have uh, uh, are much more inelastic than those who want to lever. And so that results in a price decline. And so it's a balance. It's not clear to me that, you know. again, every deleveraging is somebody else's leveraging.
0: Right. And so we we have this, you know, kind of very difficult environment created for treasuries by by all of these dynamics, right? Higher than expected growth, kind of policy tightening. Now, I think this is a good point to transition into kind of the QT flow and how that's impacting assets today. So would you like to expand on that a
1: little bit? Sure, gladly. Um, so, um, so mostly the first thing I think is um, important to say is, to explain the mechanism of how QT operates as currently done in the United States Um, and most everywhere, but the UK is um, changing the rules a little bit. Um, And that is that the balance, the QT is the balance, is the simple balance sheet reduction of a a central bank. And the Fed is using the method of, of um, taking their portfolio. And every time there is a, um maturity, instead of reinvesting that maturity, they demand payment. Um, and so that's all they're doing. They're not selling any bonds. Um, those are called outright sales. They're not selling any mortgages. Um, so as yet, they have said, um, in fact, recently said that they're not planning on selling any mortgages in the near term. They're not thinking about that. Um, so they're not selling any bonds to the market that the market has to absorb. Um, the Bank of England is selling bonds that the market's going to have to absorb. They're not doing what is called what I, the first the Fed is doing, which is called runoff. They're doing outright sales. So let's keep focused on the Fed for the time being. Um, what's the mechanism then of demanding payment versus selling bonds in the market? I thought you know what we needed was new buyers of bonds. Um, well, if the Fed isn't selling any bonds, they're just demanding payment. You know what's what's the big deal? And the big deal is that uh, the government doesn't have the money to pay the, off the bonds. They, gotta, they spend the taxpayers' money on all the other things they spend taxpayers' money on, and also issue more bonds because they deficit spend. Now, so they don't have the money to pay the Fed, so they have to issue more bonds than they otherwise would. Normally, those excess bonds would have been bought by the Fed if they had reinvested the proceeds, but they're not. So those excess bonds now have to go into the market. And so the Fed's bonds that are maturing are sold by Treasury into the market. And so that's the mechanism. Um, So now what's happening? How do you measure that? And how do you measure the impact? So um, there's another flow that is happening, um, which is the size of the deficit. Um, So not only does the Fed, sorry, the Treasury have to issue bonds to Excess bonds that the Fed isn't buying to pay off the Fed for what's running off. But they also have to fund the government. So they also have, and when the government runs at a deficit, the um, government has to issue bonds. So those are coming already. Um, and so now w- let's check the deficit. And um, in May of, of, um, of this year, uh, the government announced in the quarterly refunding announcement, which is, you know, by the time this post is going to probably have happened, um, but um, they announced that they actually are going to run a surplus this quarter, that quarter, and so they aren't going to sell any new bonds. Well, that's something. No new money demanded by, from the private sector. Only the money that they were letting run off from the Treasury, which uh, from the Fed, which had just started in which hadn't even started in May, had just started in June. Only those bonds were going to be needed to um, um, be absorbed by the market. And so part of my June call was that the uh, quarterly refunding announcement um, had indicated that there was going to be less supply of bonds in the market. And so assets could be supported. So, so that's an important dynamic to follow, which is how much is the government actually going to sell because that's the transmission mechanism of QT. That's what puts pressure to, for um, asset returns to, to expected asset returns to rise, meaning risk premiums to expand um, assets to fall. That's the pressure. And so you have to look at what the treasury is going to issue more so than you need to know how much the Fed isn't going to buy.
0: Andy, I'd like you to expand a little bit more about how this treasury supply is impacting portfolios through what is commonly known as the portfolio rebalance channel and how that's kind of a drag on assets.
1: Right. So I find it more intuitive to think about QE and we can just reverse it, but The way QE works is the government buys, the Fed buys bonds, and somebody has to sell the bonds. Somebody who wanted the bonds has to sell them, and so um, now they have cash and they wanted bonds, and so they now have to look out to the market and say, I I, got to reinvest, and so they buy corporates, and corporates um, are just like bonds except a little bit of credit spread, so the the, the little bit of risk goes out to the curve, Um, and um corporates often the corporation themselves when the guy who sold who sold the government the fed their bonds their treasury bonds buys the corporate these guys are the seller and so the corporation sells the um the corporate bond and now they have cash that they need to invest and so they buy um often share repurchase so they buy equity but some of the buddy who had the equity now has cash and they want something else. So maybe they buy a meme equity or a crypto. And as i said on past podcasts, um, somebody who had a meme stock or a crypto buys a Lambo. And that's how it works. And all along, the every asset gets bid up a little bit because the Fed bid up the treasury which bit up the corporate, which bit up the stock, which bit up the meme, which bit up the crypto, which bit up the Lambo. And each of those things um, is how it works through the portfolio channel. And when there's more bonds available than a bondholder doesn't wants to own, they say, gosh, and this is the QT mechanism, they say, gosh, I gotta sell something else. So they sell an equity. And then somebody who has an equity says, for me to buy that equity, I'm going to have to sell, sorry, a corporate. And for me who who just um, bought a new corporate, I'm going to have to sell equity. And then the equity guy has to sell his meme stock, and the meme stock guy has to sell his crypto, and the crypto guy has to sell his Lambo. And that's how QT tightens. And so that's the portfolio channel. And it, again, what I'm talking about is at a nuanced level, which is that portfolio channel is the lever is what the... Um, treasury decides to sell, and to the extent they sell T-bills, there's very limited impact because those are very low duration and very low risk, and there's plenty of demand, versus if they sell 30-year bonds to fund the government's runoff, that has the maximum impact. And so it's a combination. And then there's quantity, which is, are they also simultaneously Running a def a higher uh, increasing deficit or or a decreasing deficit or even a surplus in some cases, and that whole mechanism is um, of of composition and um, and uh, quantity is um, what you have to watch to have a more nuanced view of you know the impact of QT
0: also i'd uh, i'd like to add that in today's environment given you know the idios idiosyncratic vol that you've highlighted when it comes to long treasuries um you know long bonds we're actually in an environment where the bid for treasuries at the long end is a lot weaker given you know all the things that are happening when it comes to inflation and risk premium dynamics which means that the the, the, the ability of the government to finance itself at current rates is extremely hard. So as a result, the only adjustment mechanism is through higher rates, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, and that's, I mean, we've seen, and this is an important factor, which is people didn't sit on their hands when they knew that the government was gonna be issuing a bunch of bonds. Um, rest of world governments like China and Japan have sold a quarter of a, bil- a, a, quarter of a trillion bonds in the last year. Um, Hedge funds um, have sold um, um, futures um, equal to about $100 billion over the course of the last year across every point in the curve, not just a curve bet, but every point in the curve. And um, U.S. banks have sold a quarter of a trillion dollars worth of their bond inventory um, in the last nine months. Um, people have been selling along with the fact, uh, front running the fact that the, the Treasury was going to be selling and the Fed wasn't going to be buying. And so part of that has to have been priced in. It's just a question of how much.
0: Right. And the the reason I, I highlight that is because in previous episodes of QT, you could actually find quite a strong bond bid because the conditions were were adequate to facilitate, you know, disinflation. So having long bonds was probably not as bad as in this environment. So when you go out and make space in your portfolio, you were probably happy to take on long bonds earlier, but now you probably have to take them on because you have to.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Investors are saying, look at the conditions. And in particular, I just mentioned three entities, central banks, foreign central banks, um, hedge funds, and banks. And the three common things about them is they can either print money or are highly levered. And so they've been selling aggressively, and the buyers aren't them. And there are no other levered buyers around. So you have to get a significant price decline when levered sellers are selling and unlevered sellers are buying. Because the quantities are um, just large relative to the the sitting around of cash that people have, so you know that's partly this elasticity issue. Um, The buyers of bonds just have to have highly elastic demand and really don't buy much unless prices fall a lot. It now the counter argument to that is at some point and you mentioned this and this idea of conditions when you have a positively sloped yield curve um there is animal spirits to ride the curve meaning borrow short lever up by borrowing short term and buying this duration um right now the animal spirits are the opposite um if and You know, after two more meetings to next weeks and the the December meeting, you're going to have a overnight rate that is in excess, probably, who knows what the 30 year old do or the 10 year or any of the points on the curve, but you may have a across the curve, inverted curve. And if you were to have that, that means anytime you're borrowing overnight to buy duration of any sort, the carry is going negative. So you have to be very confident in such environments to want to own duration that you're going to be right on a capital basis, meaning you're going to see portfolio, uh, you're going to see appreciation because you're dying on carry, and so um, you know that's taking a lot of the bid away. Um, and animal spirits are going to have are going to have to be for a much more clear understanding that um, conditions are going to change to deflationary or disinflationary at a minimum. And um, um, lower growth. In order to lever up to buy bonds. Now that said, banks are short. You know, Jamie um, just announced his duration, um, his DVO one, which is negative. You know, short twenty million dollars of of bond DVO one. So for every one basis point of higher rates, he makes twenty million dollars. Um, he's betting the firms return it's nim based on his view of the curve and he could be wrong and if he is wrong he's going to want to buy bonds um, but do i think we're at that stage not yet i think we've
0: organically kind of drifted towards the the current macro backdrop so before we start talking about uh specific positions and particular assets maybe you can um uh, you know start us off by maybe taking us through how you're applying your framework. I know we've talked a lot about risk premium and things like that in current context, but maybe you can talk about the growth and inflation picture that you're seeing today and how that's informing your kind of forward-looking views on things.
1: Yeah. um, So I guess I, so I, I guess, so let me just describe this. So I have a view that inflation is going to be around longer than I think consensus. Um, And I have a view that um, it's demand-side inflation, not supply-side inflation, uh, and that wages and um, the already banked fiscal spend of the past two years has a long way to go before it um, results in uh, demand destruction. Um, In addition, um, I think that um, the three D's that I described um, are called, which are deglobalization, domestic energy production, and um, duplication of supply chains, um, are all politically um, attractive at this very moment. I don't know how long this nationalistic populism may last, but for the time being, we're heading globally, the world is heading in that way. And that results in these things in which um, on sourcing production, establishing duplicate supply chains with with our allies and um, um, doing whatever spending is necessary and whatever um, version of energy is um, available, whether it's... Coal, nuclear, natural gas, uh, renewables, or whatever, um, is an investment in in um, in non in essentially non productive assets. In that these assets are already available, but they require an acceptance of globalization to, cons- to and the risk of you know supply chain breakages to take advantage of. Um, and as long as this spending on things that we don't need happens, that means the guy that's building the chip factory for Intel to, you know, take away Taiwan risk for uh, U.S. automakers um, is getting a paycheck and is spending it um, at restaurants and bars and how in ho- in their home and all those sort of things. And so, um, increased um, fiscal uh, spending could possibly propel inflation to a, you know both farther and higher than one might expect. So I'm already high and as it relates to that, and I worry about getting um, um, bid up in terms of prices by fiscal policy. Um, thankfully, I think we're gridlocked in the United States, but in Europe, uh, where they're gonna also have to deal with um, uh, rebuilding um, infrastructure after a war, um, that might be a little bit harder to control, and as we just saw in Japan, um, despite them having no, having not done this during COVID, they're now um, desiring to. Um, they're just announced another two hundred billion dollar fiscal plan. Um, so those types of things are, you know, a, a risk to inflation being even higher than I expect. Um, As it relates to growth, I'm actually, I think, higher than most people as well, um, for exactly the same reasons. Um, That this spending, this fiscal spending, if it happens, and this wage and credit related spending that is still the um, residual of the fiscal spend in the past, um, should sustain growth and employment longer than expected. And so, you know, that's my longer term outlook. And the only thing I can hope is that the central bank continues to offset those pressures with tight monetary policy.
0: So we're recording this just ahead of um, the, November, the November 2nd FOMC. Um, what is your take on what has recently been kind of floating around markets, this idea of a pivot Pause, whatever you'd like to call it, um, your your outlook seems to suggest that we're going to be in a high nominal environment for a long period of time. Um, I'm not sure about how much of the balance of inflation versus real, but you know, I would I would hazard that it would probably be more inflationary than than real. And how, first off, I think how how far do you think the Fed needs to go? What pace do you think they need to go at? And is there a point where you think that, okay, we know that this is kind of an optimal level for terminal relative to what's expected?
1: I'll throw out a bunch of memes at you that I use on Twitter. One is, I think the Fed will be higher for longer, um, which is a dumb and dumber um, reference to um, their comments of higher and longer. So I think they will be higher and long for longer. Um, and thank gosh, um, the um, I wrote last uh, summer story of Goldilocks and the three pivots. Um, thank gosh, that early pivot seems to now be um, no longer part of the dialogue. They may st- still pivot now, but back then people were talking about pivoting, and before they had hard, even hiked rates more than you know 150 basis points. And so, you know, I think that's gone. Um, and now the question is soft landing or, um, it higher or for longer. And, you know, I don't think that, um, I think it's more likely it's higher or for longer. And now that's an outlook and I could be wrong because, you know, most of what I do does not predict anything past three months. I think that's very hard for me as an investor to, to make money by, um, looking at markets over a longer term horizon. Um, So what I try to do is pay attention to what I think the evolution is going to be through time. And um, I think they're gonna do what they've been saying they're gonna do since Jackson Hole. And frankly, what they've been saying they've been doing prior to Jackson Hole, but was widely ignored by these false pivoter, these uh, early pivoter types. Um, is that they're going to reach terminal rate of four and a half to four and three quarters in the next, um, over the course of the next few meetings, and then they're going to pause and examine the data. And so that's my outlook. Now, that's not higher or for longer. That's just the next three months. Thankfully, we get to see the data, and we could find out if higher or longer is going to be needed or if this um, terminal rate actually did its job. My suspicion is it won't, but I don't know and anybody who thinks they know is crazy. They have, you have to see what the impact of this lagging hikes are going to be on the economy. Um, And so, you know, that's where I am now and that's where I've been since Jackson Hole. So all of the fluctuations since Jackson Hole, which got, I think at the lows of October got to be a terminal rate expectation that was beginning to look like it could be, you know, five and a quarter, just have reversed back to what the Fed has said all along, which is we're gonna go 75 this next meeting. We will look at 50 or 75. I think they'll do 75 at the next meeting. And then maybe they'll do 25 or 50 in January, but probably not. Um, And then the pause. And the problem is asset markets might think that this is the pause for good and they're gonna get their ass handed to them at some point. The market will reach what I call the, the um, POW line, um, which is for me around 4200. and then he'll you know say higher or for longer. And the equity market will take a dip and you know we'll see this play out and again and again, until the data supports a change. And we'll see how, when that'll be. Will it be in, the, in 2023? I think it probably will be. But will it be, uh, and that's assuming nothing breaks. And so that, I want to come back to one other thing, which is my outlook for the Fed is they would like asset prices lower without breaking anything. To think that they would actually intentionally, they've often accidentally broke things, but to think that they would intentionally break because that's their way of solving inflation, I think um, ignores the fact that when they do break things, they have to pivot. So my hope is that the Fed will do what they've been doing, which is uh, guide the markets down without breaking anything. Like the Bank of England and the the, the, um, and the combination of the Bank of England announcing QT and the mess in, on the fiscal side broke something. Um, the, the U.S. looks at that and they're just they just don't want to play that game. They don't want to have to pivot. And so I think they'll continue to draw on the market and use w- deeds and actions words and actions to um to to keep pressure on markets when they get exuberant until the data shows that inflation has rolled over i'm I
0: one hundred percent want to get behind um this idea of being like incremental. And I I totally agree with you when it comes to making money, having maybe a 12-month outlook might be informative in terms of how you're going to allocate and thinking about it. But in terms of actually trading and how you're going to generate returns over the next month or so, I don't think that, especially in today's environment, maybe in past environments when we had kind of, you know, really stable and low inflation and growth kind of in in a range, You could potentially have, say, a 12-month horizon for expecting things. But I think today what is being priced or what seems the narrative seems to be is there seems to be a lot of certainty about where the Fed is going to be about six months from now. And it makes no sense based off the data that we're seeing currently. There has been no indication that nominal activity has slowed in a meaningful way. Inflation has cooled in any meaningful way. So as a result, I think that, you know, the way we've been thinking about it is that essentially every meeting is a live meeting, right? Which is something that Powell said at the start of the year. So I, I agree that we're probably going to get to the point around January where we'll really have to sit down and reassess what is the data telling us at that point, because between now and then we have only about three CPI prints. So for the Fed to come out based off the next three CPI prints and change or pivot or whatever it is, change policy meaningfully would be a you know, it would it would be something that uh, kind of like a mistake that they made in the past, where they used an outlook to shape policy, as opposed to what's actually happening in the conditions that are being experienced. So, I totally get behind you on that. What I think is um, worth exploring is w- maybe let's 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 define what something breaking is, right? Because there's this idea that the Fed breaks things, and you know something is going to break. First off, what in your mind is something breaking, and then. Second, do you think that, you know, to to kind of impose my own views a little bit, I, I think that the thing that, in air quotes, breaks is potentially, you know, just a continuation of extreme treasury ball, right? And in that case, do you think there is the option for them to slow down QT before they begin to consider rates?
1: right. Firstly, I think that um, great investors can make money in all environments at very differing inv- and horizons. I personally can't make money and never have been able to make money on things past much past three months. But you know, my colleagues at Bridgewater can't trade. You know, you you move a, you move seventy five billion dollars worth of ten year notes, which is a position for them and only equal to one hundred percent of their assets. Uh, you can't do that. You know that's that's QT for a, more than QT for a month to move that sort of position, so they can't do it. They can't trade on a three-month horizon. They have to trade on a longer horizon, and they're doing a great job doing that. Um, at the same time, um, I know what I do, and that's what I do. Now, as it relates to um, the outlook, um, the Fed will do what it can do, and it can only be incremental. and um, and how they guide is important in the incremental. And if they pause for one meeting, what they say about the potential for next meeting and all that can help um, manage through that. Um, and the economy is going to have fits and starts in both directions. And so, you know, there is a fair degree of uncertainty. Um, but let me start by saying um, that the QT lever is not held by the Fed. Except in quantity, the QT lever is held by the Treasury, and so the Treasury is part of the administration and is political. And um, they may, and the reason why I say that they have a lever to issue more bills. If they issue more bills instead to fund the deficit and to pay back the Fed, then then duration markets rally. So again, this is why I focus on what had been released today, the QRA, um, um, about how that dynamic works. Um, They have a lever and they're a political agent. So that, to me, is informative, and I'd want to pay a lot of attention to when they use that political leverage. To me, it's if they if if we're still um, dealing with this market weakness in. um, 2024 that lever's getting pulled. Um now, will it happen in 2023? It depends. Um which brings up the question of breaking things. And to me breaking things is um you know, is a lot of garbage frankly that people talk about. I, I just it, it's a it's a pet peeve of mine I am I
0: completely agree with you by the way.
1: Yeah. Um so I just generally don't like to um think about these sort of, not think about, I think about them all the time, but extreme language. Um, so what was happening in the um, LDI was a reasonable, uh, in Britain, which all of a sudden everybody in the world knows what an LDI is out of, out of thin air. But um, when something like that happens, when everybody knows about something called an LDI or a inverse um, or, or a double inverse floater, like in 90, uh, IO, like in 94, um, or they find out about a guy named uh, that um, was the um, the portfolio manager for the, pen, the Orange County Pension Fund. That's what I mean by breaking. Some out of the blue financial distress occurs. Um, long-term capital, that's another good example. Um, Enron, you know, times where individual entities that are potentially, that are both generate contagion throughout the financial system and are large enough themselves so that that, um, markets become dislocated or is breaking something. And it happens um, for lots of various reasons. Um, And, you know, 98 was the long-term capital thing and things were broken for a long time, but gosh, um, uh, it was pretty episodic, not um, societal. And the Fed has to step, and the Fed cut 75 basis points um, in a surprise move um, simply because of long term capital, which, you know, looking back, it was $3 billion of equity that was going to be evaporated and, you know, 300 million, 300 billion of positions maybe, but probably not. Um, That's not a big deal. Now, 2007 was everything breaks. Not only that, the financial institutions break. And I bring that up because um, I do believe that the financial system is dramatically stronger than it was in any year that I've studied. Um, and so that contagion seems fairly unlikely to me. Um, and so, again, I, I think the outlook is that we don't break anything. We just continue to have this headwind of... of um, of um, asset premium asset um, price declines against um, a surplus of assets. But I could be wrong, you know, there could be another, uh, you know, I've looked at the insurance, the, the one thing that I care that I've paid a lot of attention to is, you know, after the LDI, looking across insurance company positions in the United States who are long duration holders and trying to find leverage, and I haven't been able to do that. Um, and in fact, the stocks are gangbuster strong. Um, despite being long a lot of leverage, it's because they're short, short a lot of duration in their in their liability portfolio. It's a question of leverage, um, and I haven't been able to find the the any sort of suspect for a U.S. breakage. I guess bankruptcies, um, but you know, so far economic conditions remain strong, so you're not going to get bankruptcies.
0: That makes sense. Um, now maybe I think we've got a good understanding of how you think about the world. We've kind of understood where you think we're at and where we probably are going over the next few months. Why don't you lay out kind of your ideas for risk and how you're thinking about positioning?
1: Okay, so uh, I have a lot of thoughts on positioning and I have some positions. So I'll start with my positions. Um, My positions are, I went max long equities on, September 29th, and I am have hedged up that max long um, a little bit um, this week, um, uh, fully actually this week, um, doing some today, um, and uh, that's worked out. And I have positive like if we drift higher, I do well. So my ac- outlook is we continue to drift higher. Um, I am short vol in in rates, which I put on uh, in this week, uh, maybe a few days before that and was early, um, but now that's position starting to work. Um, I uh, am looking to buy gold. Um, I'm looking to buy one year oil and own some one year oil. And all of that positioning could radically change based on the quarterly refunding announcement and the Fed meeting on um, November 1st and 2nd. So I am uh, in the midst of writing up my damp spring report for my clients uh, that they'll see over the weekend. And then this will be aired sometime after that. And the quarterly refunding will uh, come out. And at that point I expect, um, my positions could go in either direction, frankly. We'll see what happens. My, My expectation is, um that we continue to rally in equities and we continue to sort of and we stabilize in bonds.
0: Okay, um, and as we wind down, I know we didn't really touch on this too much in the conversation, but how are you more on a strategic or you know beta kind of perspective thinking about navigating today relative to, you know, maybe a year ago where we went probably more of a, you know, air quotes disinflationary period as opposed to one where you know stagflation is dominant
1: from a positioning standpoint um i'm seeing my um signals fire more frequently and um scaling my risk a bit lower than i would in other times because i want to have um uh, powder dry for um given that other signals are firing more frequently that might diversify the portfolio etc So, strategically, I'm trying to um, uh, filter a little bit my signals um, to minimize and uh, in terms of the sizing of positions. Um, And I don't expect that to change in the near term. Um, So, I think that's the biggest difference. Um, Other than that, same old, same old. Follow my systems and improve them.
0: Excellent. No, that, that, that just tells you you're, 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 you're trying to generate some pure alpha there. Um, well, Andy, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. The conversation, as promised, has been enlightening. Um, before we sign off, I would, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to tell us and the listeners where we could you know, find out more about you and Damp Spring.
1: Sure. So um, I'm very active on Twitter. At uh, Damped Spring um, is my handle. Um, And I have a website that has all of my um, uh, prior um, Damp Spring reports and some other content, including other podcasts and recordings and one-on-ones and things of that nature. Um, And if you're interested, I also, though I currently have a wait list, I do offer some uh, more um, um, deeper uh, education and... Um, research to clients uh, that sign up on my uh, for my subscription service. And of course, as a hedge fund, uh, my primary business is I am a research provider and consultant for hedge funds. And so hedge fund clients that are interested in getting those services, I have, um, you know, some capacity to take on a couple more.
0: Excellent. Uh, Andy, thanks again for your time.
1: It was a pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Take care. See ya.